Welcome to Engaging History. My name is Christopher Kinsella, author of Chain of Deception. I'm a professor of history at Cuyahoga Community College in Northeast Ohio. My podcasts are not endorsed by any individual or organization. This podcast is my opinion and interpretation of the historical events that I will discuss. The purpose of the podcasts are in general to discuss American and world history in a way that engages you and explains so much of the country and the world around you. But I also discuss it in a way that is understandable and interesting. Welcome to podcast number 19 in our series on world history. In podcast number 18, we looked at the development of the initial states born out of the former colonies they were once, of course, ruled by the flag of Great Britain. We looked at the characteristic of those state constitutions, which governed those states, and saw many elements of them that would eventually be wrapped up into America's development of our national government. But at this particular time, I reminded you as well during that podcast that America does have a government. Oftentimes, again, students mythically believe that after the American Revolution concluded, we didn't have a government established. We did. It was the Confederation Congress, as we talked about, but it wasn't working. So we went over in that podcast the strengths as well as the challenges of that Confederation government, which eventually landed some of our founding fathers into the the doorstep of George Washington out at Mount Vernon to essentially say, hey, General, hope you're enjoying your retirement, but we're going to need you again. Which is what brings us then to podcast number 19. So in this podcast, we're going to look at the development of what becomes retrospectively known, not known at this time in late 1786, early 87, as the Constitutional Convention, because they don't know they're going to be drawing up a brand new constitution. In fact, creating a brand new constitution, really, uh, where this, of course, is going to come out of. They don't know this yet, right? So that said... The men are there on the doorstep of George Washington pleading with him that, hey, we possi- we're we going to really need to shake things up, possibly even abolish our current form of government in its infancy and to kind of, you know, sedate people and keep them at bay that we're not planning on overthrowing the government and establishing another hierarchy, you know, based on somebody's last name here. In other words, another monarchy. Uh, General Washington, your presence is going to make all the difference in the world. And that's the reason, again, he was there. There is one other personality, though, that I also want to stress. And, and, And eventually, I will be doing a podcast that focuses far more on the Uh, Constitutional Convention, and I'll get more into the individual key players. But for purposes of keeping this a survey approach uh, form of podcast to American history, just like I do in my world history podcast, again, I'm only going to go an inch deep because we have to make sure that we're keeping the 10 miles wide as we progress through. So from here, looking at the one other personality, and that is well, I don't want to say largely unknown because everybody knows for the most part in the United States, if you've had at least one American history class, you knew who Ben Franklin was. But we know Ben Franklin because of so many hats that that man wore. The dip, the hat of the diplomat, the hat of the inventor, the hat of the entrepreneur, the hat of the educator of our 
uh, first postmaster general, on and on. But ladies and gentlemen, his role there, his mere presence, it can be argued, kept that constitutional convention together. Personalities were so split. Fangs were out against somebody from another state who wanted to do something different at the federal level than they were doing at the state level. It's almost as though the mindset was, give me a reason to agree, because if not, I'm just going to disagree with you before you even open your mouth. That's why Ben Franklin wasn't largely the chief diplomat. He was notorious for going to the city tavern and always making sure that he had the largest table for himself. Well, who did he sit with? He wouldn't know. He wouldn't know going to lunch when they would break for a long lunch in early afternoon. He wouldn't know he was going to sit with even in the, in that morning of. It would only be by the time they broke for lunch did Benjamin Franklin know who he was going to sit with. He might know that at today's lunch, I need Thomas Jefferson from Virginia, and I need Alexander Hamilton from New York. I need you boys at my table today, please. He would ask in such a way that it wasn't a command, but a request that you by and large just didn't want to say no to. The common denominator over the people that Benjamin Franklin invited to his lunch, uh, lunch table is they had vehemently disagreed about something the prior morning or the prior afternoon. And he wanted to keep people together, to understand that they have differences, but please focus on the common denominators that all of us from the 13 states have far more of. Quick case in point about the way Franklin's diplomatic mind worked really is best shown by nothing had to do with the convention itself. It had to do one time when there was a meeting in Philadelphia that a lot of the founding fathers were arriving for. And Benjamin Franklin getting there first got one of the first rooms, which had the largest room in the middle. And he got up to his room, reviewed some notes before meeting the next day, and was just about to blow out his candle when he looked and realized that the window was closed and it was a decent temperature out. Uh, wasn't warm, but it wasn't cold either. Perfect sleeping temperature, we might say today. So Benjamin Franklin opened his window and then he went in just to blow out the candle when he thought he saw something moving down below on the ground. And he went and looked and he, lo he found that there was a park bench where there was a horse tied up to it. And a man was lying on that park bench, adjusting his overcoat. And Benjamin Franklin knew right away who it was. It was the irascible John Adams. John Adams, again, the only founding father to sign his name, the only American president to date to sign his name with a freaking period. John Adams, nothing else matters. Well, that's the way his critics interpreted it. But Adams never explained himself why he put a period after his name other than to say, well, it's a complete sentence, period, right? But it's just part of his quirky personality. God love him. But Benjamin Franklin realized that Adams couldn't find a room Certainly nobody was going to share a room with him. So this guy was relegated to the park bench for the night. Okay, not the first time any of them have had to do that. 
But the problem was that it started misting or drizzling out. And Franklin just, he knew himself well enough that he just couldn't get a good night's sleep if he knew that somebody he knew was sleeping outside. So with that, he yells through the window, John, it's me, Ben. Come on up. You can share my room. Well, John Adams immediately takes the coat, moves it, stands up, throws the coat on him, crosses the street, comes upstairs into Benjamin Franklin's room. Never once says thank you. No, hey, Ben, how you doing? Great to see you. Nothing. Just, oh, kind of getting cool out there, and it was starting to rain. Glad you called me in. It's about as thankful as John Adams got. So Benjamin Franklin was already ready for bed, so he gets in bed. He's waiting for John Adams to get ready, and he gets into bed. And if you're thinking or wondering, yes, it was the same bed. Yeah, I know. I know where your mind's going with that. Can you imagine if we had a National Globe back then? Can you imagine if we had a National Enquirer back then? Two founding fathers found in bed together, wives distraught over dot, dot, dot. I mean, can you only imagine the way the press would run with that today, right? But this was common back then. There was one bed. It was a large bed, but you made do with what you had. So John Adams gets into bed. Benjamin Franklin goes to roll over, blows out the candle, begins to close his eyes when he feels the bed jiggle, and then, bam, Franklin opens his eyes. John Adams had gotten out of bed and went and closed the window. So John Adams gets back in bed. Franklin gets out of bed and goes and opens the window, gets back into bed. John Adams gets out of bed and goes and closes the window, right? And they go this about three rounds. Now, again, mind you, whose room is it? Adams still never said thank you, not offering to split the bill. This is Franklin's picking up the bill on this one. And Adams has the audacity to make the room the environment that he wants without even asking, hey, Ben, here, you're the one foot in the bill here. Uh, do you mind? Doesn't even go there. So Benjamin Franklin goes and opens up the window one last time. Now, hear me out on this. This is the literally the, the how subtle Benjamin Franklin's diplomacy is, his diplomatic way of thinking. Opens that window, gets back into bed, pulls the blanket back up, purposely keeps his eyes open, has his hand semi in the air, waiting for John Adams to throw the blankets back to get back out of bed. Sure enough, he does that. But before he can get out of bed, Franklin says, wait a minute, John, John, hold on a second. Hold on. I know you want the window closed and I want it open, but you know what? I'll let you close it. But here's the thing. Hear me out on why I want the window open. And then after you hear me out, you can go close the window if you disagree with that. Deal? Ah, oh, deal. So John Adams sitting on the side of the bed. No, 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 John. Come on, come on. Just, just lay down. Just lay down. So John Adams lays down. Franklin throws the blanket back over him. He says, now, John, now hear me out. And ladies and gentlemen, for the next five to ten minutes, probably didn't even take that long, Benjamin Franklin begins to explain an idea he has about air exchange. The idea that fresh air into a room, the exchange of fresh with stale air might actually be healthier. Folks, this also explains the genius of Benjamin Franklin. He was so ahead of his time in which the scientific tools of the day couldn't prove. But he does it in a sing-songy way practically explaining his theory of air exchange in a lullaby-type voice 
And within a few minutes, John Adams is sawing some serious logs. I mean, that guy's toast. He's out. And Benjamin Franklin smiles to himself, puts his head back on his pillow, closes his eyes with his window still open. That, ladies and gentlemen, is just one of many stories that explains the true diplomacy that Benjamin Franklin instinctively had. And again, we needed it because many of these founding fathers want to charge right out of that building throughout the summer as the, Constitu as the convention continues to progress through that famous summer. And the hits come right away. In my covering here of the convention, of course, I can't cover everything that was taking place, even week by week. So I am just topically going to bring out a few of the issues that caused serious problems and divisions within the gentlemen that were in the room during that summer of 1787. And the first, of course, was what do we do? in the sense of our form of government. Well, William Patterson from New Jersey, he wanted to keep the form of government, the Confederation government in effect, but simply revise each article of the Confederation document simply to make it stronger. And he had some buy-in with that. There were people that wanted no part of tearing up that Confederation government. However, James Madison, a Virginian, says, I don't think it's going to work no matter what we do to it. There just simply hasn't been enough power granted to a federal authority, to a central government. In fact, in some cases, this federal authority is zip, zero. Well, five times zero was zero. Adding two more to zero is zero is essentially what James Madison is trying to argue here. You just simply can't work with what isn't there. So he proposes in what becomes known as the Virginia Plan, a, a design that would still be similar to the state plans. However, power would be divided up into three established branches of government. The key to Madison, Madison's plan not only working, but keeping a majority of the men in the room from bolting out, saying like Patrick Henry did, I smell a rat, boom, he's out of there. No, what he's trying to say is, what I'm proposing isn't that far different than what all of us are familiar with at the state level anyhow. So because he has the people's attention, he's able to profess the virtues of his plan. The problem is, is that the convention was deadlocked. Not so much between the New Jersey versus the Virginia plan, but with either plan for proper representation to take place, how are these small Northeastern states going to have an equal footing in whatever body of government is formed with those massive larger colonies in the central to southern portion of the now newly founded United States of America. That's where Roger Sherman comes in with his great compromise and says, once again, not anything new. Now, please notice the way I keep 
had, uh, rephrasing there, keep saying that nothing new, nothing new. Again, I'm not trying to knock the founding fathers from the perch that they have entitled themselves to. Have at it. I'll be the first one to to um, to agree to that, to agree with that. But what I'm again trying to stress is that it's far easier to de- modify something old into a new idea than to scrap the old entirely and try to come up with something new that nobody has been exposed to. That's where the genius of Roger Sherman comes in once again. Two houses within the federal government? My gosh, absolutely not. Sherman says, wait a minute, we're already familiar with that. The states have two houses. We derived from, we were born from a monarchy that had two houses, a house of commons and a house of lords. It's bicameralism. That's nothing new. So for that reason, Sherman gets a reluctant nod from most of the founding fathers, as well as by extension, then James Madison. Okay, so we're going to have a judicial, a legislative, and executive branch. Okay, granted. Now, mind you, literally, we've already lost some men. Some of the founding fathers that were invited by this point in the convention have already gone back home. They agreed not to talk to the press. They agreed not to discuss in their public squares what was being discussed in the room, but they just genuinely did not think that anything good was going to come of it. So they're already losing people at this point that even Benjamin Franklin can't save, right? So it comes to the next bitter pill, and that's where all the eyes were on, meaning their eyes, right? That's what they were looking at. The judicial branch That seemed far more passive. That would be a group of people, no real threat. The legislative branch, massive group of people. Again, most people didn't see a threat. But that executive branch, that's where the seeds could be sown for a future king. The way they create the executive branch of government, they have to be so careful that the common Americans, the you and I of America, John and Jane Doe, John and Jane Q. Public, don't look at the article that describes the creation of a chief executive and say, that's the outline for a modern king. Ladies and gentlemen, if you were to see the way President Trump gets around Washington, D.C., the United States, the world as a whole, on Air Force One, Marine One, the Beast, the 16,000-pound Cadillac limousine that he's has whisked around in. The likes the same, of course, with Obama and Bush and Clinton and George H.W. Bush and Reagan going all the way on. That president that we know of today is not what these founding fathers had in mind. Not even close. And I'm not decrying the modern presidency. Again, that's one of my areas of specialty. I will eventually be launching a series of podcasts on strictly the American presidency. But for the purposes, again, of this survey podcast, again, with the modern day president we're seeing today, the men that wanted to walk out of the room back in 1787, that would have been the premise because of how, again, highly revere we hold our American president. But please hold that thought in check for just a moment, because it is amazing to leaders around the world what our American president can't do. So yes, the chief executive was far more powerful than anyone imagined, but there had to be a single person who would represent the president, the, the, the United States population, America at large, 
who would be that figure person? Well, no surprise that term limits were immediately kicked around, not only for members of the House of Representatives at two years, as we know, the Senate would be given six years. But what about this president? Should he be given term limits? They were going back and forth with this. They didn't know. And initially, again, the thought was, well, if he has to be voted into office, then he can be voted out of office. That's the term limit. So initially they thought no term limits, which of course they didn't eventually they did not enact one. That wouldn't be passed until the 22nd Amendment, well into the 20th century. But how long should he serve? Two years? That's far too short to really get the understanding of, quote unquote, how to do the job to get past the learning curve. That's too short. But six years terrified the founding fathers. So they compromised with, go figure, a four-year term. And the genius of that is truly remarkable. You see, the House of Representatives is responsible to us. They are the ones that have to, that have what we call the power of the purse. Because of that, the founding fathers said, you're running for office every two years, which is why the 438 members of the House of Representatives, they are constantly in re-election mode. Because the moment they take the oath of office on January 3rd, in less than two years, they have to run for office again. There's no guarantee, but there's also no limits to the number of times they can run. The Senate, on the other hand, who is by and large our foreign policy body, as well as other domestic issues, they have the luxury of being able to run for office, get elected, and maybe pass the bills into law that are not necessarily politically popular at that time, but are better for Americans down the road. And the genius of that is that they literally don't have to run except every half dozen years. That gives that body longevity. The president is right in the middle at four years. So how and then did the chief executive, the idea of having a president of the United States, how then did that bitter pill actually work its way down the throats of so many of the men that were fighting it? Believe it or not, it's because of the unspoken assumption that if this document is ultimately approved, this outline of a constitution, which is going on to now two to three pages, eventually four pages of parchment, if this ultimately is approved by us and is approved by nine out of the 13 states, I think everybody in that room was assuming, in fact, I can show you the documents to prove it, that they already knew who that first president was going to be. And it was the man that all the way to date in that summer of 1787 has yet to say boo, has yet to say one word. And that, of course, is George Washington. Nobody was throwing that idea out faster than Benjamin Franklin. Come on, come on, don't leave the convention over this, Hamilton. Come on, Jay, don't walk out of here as a result of this. You know darn well who it's going to be. He's going to be the first president. Yeah, but then who's after him? Well, how many, how far down the road are you going to worry about? Can we just get through this summer, please? Can we just see if we can get this document approved, right? And that's ultimately how the idea of a chief executive ultimately stayed. The last one, and you know, is the elephant in the room that I hadn't discussed yet. 
and that is, what about the institution of slavery? This was a clear dividing line within Independence Hall, not between large state and small state, of course, but between the states whose constitutions were allowing slavery versus those who were in the works of banning it. There was no compromise on this per se at that time in 1787. So what the founding fathers came up with was this. Because this is an impasse, which will blow this convention apart, and every future convention, no matter when we form it, no matter where it's held, and no matter what time of year, the institution of slavery is going to sink that ship every time. Agreed? Nobody disagreed. Then how about this? Congress is simply barred from outlawing slavery for 20 years. And believe it or not, the Southerners jumped on that. That we can handle. Now think about this. What's 20 years? 20 years. If somebody is dating somebody that is 20 years older or younger, what sometimes do we say about those two people? Who's dating who? You're right. It, two different generations, right? A generation that roughly 20 years, the number is what's significant here. Because in 1787, with the average person in the room in their mid-50s, with a life expectancy only in the mid-60s, 20 years, all those men figure they're going to be pushing up daisies anyhow. They're going to be fertilizer by that point. They'll be dead. They don't really have to see how this impasse resolves itself. So if you're sitting back in your car as you're listening to this, hope you just didn't swerve and nearly hit something. Because if you're coming across the same rationalization, which I'm about to share with you, you're absolutely right. The whole idea that sometimes Congress is blamed today for taking problems and sweeping it under the rug for a future generation to, do it, to deal with, folks, that didn't start in the 20th century. That didn't even start in the 1800s. That started before we even had a Constitution of the United States. And yes, the men largely took that ticking time bomb and swept it under the rug, brushed their hands, and basically said, next item? Exactly. However, please note this as well. And this is also what in some cases is, is truly a black mark on the convention itself, is that runaway slaves did have to be returned to their proper owners, regardless of where they ran away to. Which leads me then to the final question, especially with that deadly assertion that four population counts to establish how many people will be elected to the House of Representatives. The slave owners in the South knew that they would always be outnumbered by the white Northerners in the more populous, smaller states of the Northeast. So the last part of the bitter pill that they insisted the Northerners swallow was that each slave shall be counted as three-fifths of a person. That cruel irony flew in the face, that hypocrisy flew in the face of any common sense and decency. Clearly nobody could disagree with that. Here these Southerners and Northerners, folks, you have to understand, they agreed to this. You don't just blame the Southerners here. But please remember that they were products of their times. 
And a question that I'm going to leave you with is, did the founding fathers drop the ball on ending slavery? Could they have done it when they actually had the opportunity? When we return for our next podcast, we're going to discuss that. We're going to then get to that final day in September 17th of 1787 to see if by noon, as required at the outset before the Constitution Convention even began, it will end with no discussion, no compromise at noon on September 17th of that summer. Who signs it? And then we'll progress from there to give an overview of the Constitution, an overview, though, that I'd be willing to bet you you never learned in your American government class, and I can almost guarantee you never learned from your American history teachers or professors. So thank you for listening. Please go to my website, cekinsella.com, and email me with any questions you might have or book recommendations. If you like what we discussed, leave me a review as well. Thanks again for listening. Have a great day. Thank you.